0: Chapter 15 ANC Secretary-General As a result of Ramaphosa's skillful management of the release and reception of Robben Island prisoners, he was now something less of an ANC outsider. He was still just a trade union leader with a limited UDF base, regarded as a Johnny-come-lately by many exile and Robben Island grandees. Yet Cyril was also suddenly everywhere – and often at the side of the man, Nelson Mandela, whom everybody wanted to see. With the approach of the ANC's July 1991 conference, at which the organization was due to remake itself after decades of exile and suppression, Ramaphosa could have contemplated standing for a major office with some confidence. But he was reticent about an open campaign for such a senior position, exhibiting an unchanged aspect of his political character. He did not like to stand, if he thought he might lose. On the eve of the ANC conference, Ramaphosa sat by chance next to Black Consciousness activist Seth Cooper, on a flight to Durban. Cooper recalls, "He asked me if he should stand. Did I think it was a good idea? Did I think he would win?" Not for nothing do two of Cyril's greatest admirers, James Motlatsi and former cabinet minister Kader Asmal use almost the same words to describe his reticence to run for office even when he has a good chance of success. Mottlatsi laughs that Cyril is a coward when it comes to elections and Asmal observes that you never really know until the last minute whether he's got the balls to run. On this occasion, there was some justification for Ramaphosa's reticence The 48th National Conference, held between the 2nd and 7th of July 1991, was the first full assembly of the liberation movement for decades. It provided a first opportunity for members to debate together the character of the movement that would dominate post-apartheid politics. More than 2,000 delegates, representing half a million nominal members, attended, and they included UDF activists members of underground structures, foot soldiers from the camps of Mkonto sizwe the women's and youth leagues, and returned exiles from foreign ANC missions. The first key challenge was electing a new leadership for the movement and a new National Executive Committee (NEC). UDF and Kasatu Convention was to insist on an open contest for leadership positions whereas the traditional exile practice, forged in different conditions, was to take key decisions behind closed doors and in advance. The conference was therefore held in an atmosphere of uncertainty and sometimes hostility between different factions. Most members of the current NEC were lobbying hard for the re-election, in effect reappointment, of the entire exile slate. On their view, the exile ANC possessed a monopoly of wisdom and political legitimacy. The most senior available positions, those of President and National Chairman of the ANC, were unanimously secured without contest by Nelson Mandela and Oliver Tambo. Since his release, Mandela's rise had continued and he was now the movement's de facto presidential candidate. Controversy, however, surrounded the remaining officers. Delegates were looking to the future and contemplating the likely successes to the aging generation of Mandela, Tambo and Sisulu. Two relative youngsters were clearly in the succession frame, at least in the eyes of exiles. Chris Harney, charismatic leftist firebrand and head of the ANC's armed wing, and Tabo Mbeki protégé of Oliver Tambo, a man with considerable diplomatic experience and the brave initiator of Lusaka's 1980s negotiations with the regime. Fearing a divisive contest, the movement's elders may have persuaded Tabo Mbeki and Chris Haney not to enter the contest for the senior office of deputy president. Vic Allen's recollection is that Harney Heard that Tabo Mbeki was intending to stand for the position of deputy president, so he approached Mbeki and told him that if he stood, then he, Harney would also stand. Walter Sisulu was eventually elected deputy president, and Thomas Nkobi was an uncontentious choice as the movement's treasurer-general. It is possible that Tabombeki Mbeki believed he had Ramaphosa's agreement that he would not contest the office of secretary-general. Mbeki's close ally, Jacob Zuma, was also running for the position. However, Ramaphosa's supporters had planned quite carefully for him to compete and he enjoyed the advantage of confronting an ageing and uncharismatic incumbent, Alfred Nzor. Ramaphosa's victory over both Zuma and Nzor turned into a landslide. In the final count, he secured three votes for every one Zor received. This crushing of Nzor was no fault of Cyril's, but it generated some counter-reaction against his humiliation of an elder. Jacob Zuma, meanwhile, was obliged to retreat, licking his wounds, possibly harbouring resentment against Ramaphosa. He was eventually elected Cyril's junior in the post of deputy secretary-general. As the dust settled, the forces behind Ramaphosa's election to one of the ANC's key offices became clearer. He had established a strong reputation for competency and organisation building. Given that the infrastructure of a political party had to be created in time for elections that might be a few short years away, these were strong prima facie recommendations for his appointment. Ramaphosa had also established a strong relationship with Nelson Mandela. By the public nature of their interaction, Mandela conferred a legitimacy on Ramaphosa in much the same way as Tambo's aura surrounded Tabombeki. Cyril, moreover, turned out to have a constituency that was unexpectedly broad. He was an acknowledged leader of COSATU, and the union movement was already emerging as a major breeding ground of political organisers. Many of the most talented and energetic activists at the first conference were union officials, and Ramaphosa was their natural choice as Secretary General. In the economic heartland of the country around Johannesburg, then known as the PWV, Ramaphosa was especially well known among trade unionists. He also had the support of much of the powerful civic establishment from his hometown of Soweto. Less well understood was the fact that Ramaphosa enjoyed a massive and influential constituency among working and retired mine workers in the ANC's heartland of the Eastern Cape, in the Orange Free State and in the Northern Cape. Ramaphosa had been General Secretary of the NUM for almost a decade, during which time hundreds of thousands of mine workers had come to view him as their natural spokesman. The interim ANC provincial leaderships that had been put in place across the country were therefore unexpectedly well disposed towards the nomination and election of the young union leader. One further factor in Ramaphosa's favour was that most of these senior positions in the movement were monopolised by an older generation of exile politicians hailing from the Eastern Cape. From the point of view of representativity, always a key consideration in the ANC, it was desirable to have a younger African from the domestic struggle, who was not a tosa elected to a senior position. In such a role, Cyril might have been preferred by many exiles to a potential rival such as Popo Molefe, He was not fully a part of the wider UDF structures that the repatriated Lusaka ANC was now keen to dismantle, and so he was less likely to protect them. In addition, his rivals may have recognized that tying Cyril to the demanding role of Secretary-General would leave him with less time for personal campaigning in pursuit of the higher state offices that would soon become available. The decisive factor in overcoming Ramaphosa's reluctance to stand was that leaders of the SACP had asked him to do so. If Cyril always wanted to be on the winning side, SACP's support came close to the guarantee of success he required. While Ramaphosa was never a Marxist, nor indeed was he ever a systematic theorist about politics, he was broadly sympathetic to the ideology's critical analysis of capitalism. The South African Communist Party was also a familiar presence in the union movement, which it viewed as an advanced force in the struggle for working-class mobilisation. The ANC cadres, with whom he had the most contact in the late 1980s, Mack Maharaj, Govan Mbeki and Khalema Motlante, were leading South African Communist Party members. Cyril was also influenced by members of the wider international communist movement. He met his English friend Vic Allen, who was to remain a communist and defender of the Soviet Party after its 1990s implosion, in a boat off the coast of Cuba, where they had both travelled to meet Fidel Castro. Arthur Scargill, eccentric communist leader of the British NUM, also regularly attended South African NUM Central Committee meetings and served as a conduit for funds and advice. James Motlatsi, Cyril and Vic Allen visited the Soviet Union together clandestinely. When Joe Slovo returned from exile, he and Cyril were to become very close friends and confidants. Slovo was in reality a pedestrian socialist theorist but he adroitly used Marxist categories to justify his acute pragmatic judgments. His South African Communist Party, in truth, was an organizational rather than an ideological force, an institution that brought together the most capable cadres to neutralize the ethnic squabbling and patronage politics that were routine elsewhere in the ANC. Was Ramaphosa a South African Communist Party member? William Goumede comments that Cyril allowed his membership to lapse, but characteristically offers no sources to support his contention that Ramaphosa was ever a member. Cyril's friend Vic Allen once suspected he was a secret member of the party for a year or two in the late 1980s, but no longer feels that this was the case. Frederick von Sayle speculates that Cyril joined the SACP as a matter of expediency just as Tabo Mbeki resigned. Slubbett's contention is that both Mbeki and Ramaphosa recognized the great significance of the decline of the USSR. For Mbeki, there was no longer a relationship with Soviet power and resources to justify a continuing affiliation, and he resigned from the South African Communist Party Politburo at the end of the 1980s. For Ramaphosa, by contrast, SACP members seemed the liberation movement's most penetrating strategists. Allen argues that Cyril's relationship with the SACP was deep and dependent. He had close relationships with Motlante, Mbeki, and Maharaj. When the ANC and the SACP were unbanned, Cyril committed the funds and resources of NUM to re-establish both of them throughout South Africa. Moreover, the SACP's central office and NUM were in the same building, and Cyril had only to walk down two flights of stairs to have a discussion with SACP leaders. After Chris Harney became the General Secretary, he made that trip frequently. Harney had a big influence on Cyril. As the negotiations got underway, he also grew close to Joe Slovo. For a period, then, Cyril's closest associates were communists. If Ramaphosa found the SACP appealing, the party also needed him. In some eyes, a disproportionately white and Indian organization, the SACP always courted African leaders like Ramaphosa. It required an insurance policy against the debilitation or death of its long-term African figurehead, Chris Harney. Cyril's colleagues at the NUM, James Motlatsi and Marcel Golding, meanwhile both counseled him against joining the party. This was an affiliation Cyril simply did not need. He was already a leader in his own right. For some of those who had created the black union movement, The aggressive entryism of the SACP was a constant threat. Its secretive membership recruitment and caucusing and the dedication of its activists allowed it to exercise vastly disproportionate influence on union bureaucracies. By agreeing to pay to rebuild the South African Communist Party, Ramaphosa helped to establish a later pattern in which the SACP depended on trade union donations to secure its financial independence from the ANC. In consequence, the party felt the need to manipulate trade union elections to ensure that sympathetic union leaders would continue to divert resources to it. In the NUM there had been a steady rise of SACP penetration during the 1980s and cadres were now found at senior level among the area and regional organisers. When Cyril was elected ANC Secretary-General in 1991 and resigned in consequence from the Union, the SACP moved to establish control. It would appear that it did so with the collusion, or at least passive acquiescence, of Ramaphosa. Marcel Golding had been elected Assistant General Secretary after defeating communist rival Gweri Mantash at a previous National Congress. When Ramaphosa resigned... Golding immediately took over as acting general secretary in accordance with the Constitution of the Union. He was soon subjected to a smear campaign in which he was alleged to be linked to the CIA and to American mining interests. For Allen, writing 17 years later, Golding was not known as politically progressive, let alone a Marxist. Indeed, it was generally believed in the NUM head office that Golding had established relations with U.S. embassy officials and that some of them visited the Enum's head office in Rissick Street to meet him, usually in the morning before the office staff arrived. In reality, such accusations still lack credibility. Golding was simply hostile to the growing influence of the SACP within the Union. The next meeting of the Central Committee of the Union was a torrid affair. Though this committee was a higher body of the Union, it did not have the authority to appoint senior officers, a function reserved for the National Congress. Nevertheless, the issue of the position of General Secretary was raised and strong criticisms were levelled at Golding. At the ringside, International Communist Party sympathisers Vic Allen and Arthur Scargill looked on. A communist putsch was evidently in the offing. Golding vehemently opposed claims by members of the committee that they had the right and the obligation to replace him, but he was relentlessly browbeaten and ultimately reduced to tears. In contravention of the Union's constitution, he was forced to arrange and then to compete in a ballot for acting General Secretary that he considered totally illegitimate. During this vicious and unconstitutional manoeuvre, Ramaphosa was present and he was asked to intervene. But he signally failed to back Golding's interpretation of the rules. In this way, an impression was created that Ramaphosa had enjoyed SACP support for his election as ANC Secretary General, and in return, he had allowed the NUM to become the only major Kosati union in which a majority of office holders were SACP members. Despite this close and apparent symbiotic relationship with the SACP, it transpires that Ramaphosa never in fact became a member of the party. MacBaraj Maharaj did write to SACP General Secretary Joe Slovo towards the end of the 1980s asking that Cyril be recruited to what was known as Category D membership. This type of membership had emerged in the 1950s to permit high-profile individuals to join the party in complete secrecy. Category D members were allocated to cells or units that did not have highly active communists in them, in this way protecting them against inadvertent exposure through associations with known activists. The advantage of Category D membership to the party was that these hidden cadres could be mobilized suddenly at crucial moments. While Ramaphosa's application was in process, Maharaj insisted that he should meanwhile be treated as if he was already a member of the party. In Maharaj's view, Cyril was comfortable with the positions of the party, and the Vula commander had interacted with him repeatedly without a single breach of security occurring. The application was, however, never to result in membership. Fate intervened in the unlikely manifestation of Jacob Zuma, who had just been appointed to the Politburo. Zuma was a counterintelligence specialist and he was tasked with performing a background check on Ramaphosa to ensure he was not an infiltrator. This was the proper course of action. All the same, Zuma was already sympathetic to the theory a precursor to the later culture of mediocrity in the ANC, that any accomplished young member of the liberation movement was quite likely a spy. If such a youngster was not in the employ of foreign powers or the state, how else could he have acquired his exceptional skills? Zuma took a very long while to report back. When he did so, He claimed that there were security question marks around Ramaphosa's past. Maharaj was outraged given his complete confidence in Cyril and the indisputable fact that Maharaj himself had not been arrested despite associating with him. The regime, he observed, would have been thrilled to have secured his scalp. Eventually the Vula boss met with Zuma to hear his evidence for himself. It transpired that Zuma's doubts rested on the already well-known fact that Cyril, like so many others, had once been imprisoned and released without being charged. Maharaj told Zuma he was not satisfied with the report and sent him away to investigate further. Events were soon to overtake these lumbering inquiries and the opportunity to join the party was lost. The fact that Cyril did not join the South African Communist Party was soon rendered irrelevant. Mac Maharaj and Joe Slovo were key SACP power brokers and their trust in him was absolute. Slovo quickly became Cyril's close friend on his return from exile. Maharaj was soon to storm out of the SACP himself, never to look back, once again in fury over Harry Gwala, this time over the volatile Natal firebrand's elevation to the SACP's central committee an axis was emerging that cut across the boundaries between party and ANC and transcended divisions between exile and domestic cadres. Members of this new left axis included some SACP stalwarts from exile, certain former SACP activists who had torn up their cards, and others who had never been and would never become members of SACP structures. Some of this last group were leftist but anti-communist intellectuals such as Palo Jordan. Others were exiles, often communist Kusatu or UDF activists such as Trevor Manuel, Cheryl Carolus and Valimusa, who were flexible and adroit enough to build bridges with their exile comrades. This wider left axis proved decisive in the nomination and election of Cyril to the position of ANC Secretary-General. Its ambitions, however, did not stop there. After the bombshell of Cyril's elevation to one of the great offices, the ANC's 48th conference moved on to the election of the NEC. The 50 members of this key decision-making body were elected from a list of 130 nominations. Much of the conference floor discussion turned on the contest between Thabo Mbeki and Chris Harney, rivals for the future leadership of the ANC. Branch delegates were aware that the two men had been asked to relinquish competition for more senior office, and this made the outcome of the NEC contest all the more exciting. The election was by secret ballot and involved each delegate casting multiple votes, almost equal to the number of positions. That were to be filled. After a tension-racked count, the most successful of the candidates, Chris Harney and Thabo Mbeki, received ninety-four point seven and ninety-three percent respectively of the vote, indicating that almost every delegate had recognised these two candidates' claims to a place on the NEC. Despite the marginal nature of the victory, Thabo Mbeki had been defeated the left's candidate, Chris Haney. Other SACP cadres who received more than 80% support in the ballot, including Joe Slovo, Ronnie Casserels, and Harry Gwala, and the NEC's top 20 also included senior UDF activists Terra Lakota, Steve Chwete, Popo Molefe and Trevor Manuel. The conference then turned to policy issues. Among the resolutions adopted by the conference was a commitment to a negotiated settlement that would have been inconceivably just two years previously. It affirmed that the possibility exists of achieving the transfer of power to the people and the creation of a united, non-racial, non-sexist and democratic South Africa by peaceful means. Care was taken to celebrate the role of all elements in the liberation movement, with the observation that this possibility has come about as a result of the heroic struggles of our people, which have included mass action, armed struggle and underground work, supported by anti-apartheid actions of the international community. Moreover, looking to the future, a resolution observed that, to achieve the strategic objective of our struggle, it is vital that we continue to combine all forms of struggle, drawing in the widest spectrum of the people. Gains made in the mass struggle will be reflected at the negotiations table and MK must maintain its combat readiness and vigilance to enable it to intervene decisively should the anti-democratic forces block the path to a peaceful settlement. In reality, it was widely, if far from universally recognized, that armed struggle had failed. And that negotiations now had a real chance of success the focus of attention was correspondingly on practical steps to get negotiations moving conference called for rapid moves to an all-party congress and the adoption of a democratic constitution and the election of a parliament representative of all the people of south africa the priority was for the newly elected nec to take immediate steps to ensure that a comprehensive and representative team comprising all chief negotiators, working groups and researchers, which shall function under the supervision and direction of the NEC, is established. In the meantime, and subject to this resolution, Conference mandates the NEC to continue with the process of all-out talks and invests it with discretionary powers within the policies of the ANC a seismic shift was occurring. The ANC's current negotiators were about to be stripped of their powers. At the first post-conference meeting in Soweto on the 17th and 18th of July 1991, the new NEC elected the 20-strong National Working Committee, NWC, which would be responsible for the everyday management of the ANC. There was much excitement when Thabo Mbeki turned the tables on Chris Harney, securing 66 votes to Harney's 65, but the real story of the meeting was the rise of the UDF. Terra Lakota, Popo Malefi and Steve Chuete each secured more than 60 votes. As a result of concerted and strategic voting by the SACP and UDF members of the National Executive Committee, Moreover, the National Working Committee acquired a distinctive leftist imprint. Members included Joe Slovo, Cheryl Carollis, Joel Necetense, Sidney Mufamadi, Ronnie Casseroles and Trevor Manuel. Mac Maharaj was only narrowly defeated for the 20th position in the National Working Committee. In the first major realignment of forces in the liberation movement for decades, a broad left front had secured a temporary ascendancy. Pressing home its advantage at the first full meeting of the National Executive Committee on the 31st of July 1991, while Nelson Mandela was on an overseas trip, the left unleashed a putsch to displace the exile leadership from key policy-making and negotiating positions. The ANC constitution stipulated that the NEC could allocate policy responsibilities to National Working Committee members. In a shock decision, Western Cape UDF activists Trevor Manuel and Cheryl Corollas secured the portfolios of economic planning and health and human resources. This was the beginning of Manuel's rapid rise to the finance ministry. The centrist exiles, nevertheless, continued to dominate portfolios such as the military, Joe Modice, International Affairs, Tabombeke and Intelligence, Joan Tlantla. The key decision concerned the conference's mandate for a new negotiating department. The NEC chose Ramaphosa to take on this great responsibility. He was thrilled and later explained his role in this way. Our conference in July decided that we should set up a negotiating team which will have the necessary backups, task forces and experts, our National Executive Committee has agreed that we should open up a department, what you could call a negotiations strategizing department in the ANC. We call it the Negotiations Commission. I have been charged with the responsibility for heading that Negotiations Commission. The left's coup or push against the exile leadership had been a brilliant success. The Negotiation Commission's membership of Ramaphosa, Kusatu, Valimusa, UDF, SACP, and Joe Slovo, SACP, with the addition of the lonely figure of Mbeki, testifies to this new alignment of forces. The putsch was devastating. Exile leaders, and in particular the two old friends, Jacob Zuma and Thabo Mbeki, had expected to dominate policymaking and to shepherd the negotiations to a conclusion. Zuma would later return to a key role in managing negotiations in Natal, but his initial responsibilities as Deputy Secretary-General were relatively circumscribed. Mbeki's demotion in negotiations was close to a humiliation. He'd been the man brave enough to enter into talks in 1989 when he and Jacob Zuma met with delegations from the National Intelligence Service in Switzerland. His principled case for negotiations had earned him the contempt of the left. Now, a few short years later, the same leftists had ousted him from the negotiations he had initiated. This was a turning point in Mbeki's political character, on one account marking the moment at which he became twisted and the vindictive streak in his character gained an upper hand. The motivations behind the putsch were several and complex, and one was certainly pure political ambition. Although Makma Raj denies having any influence over the process, I did not even make it onto the National Working Committee at the time. SACP and Vula Networks probably played a role in the strategic voting at conference and in the NEC. Domestic leaders like Ramaphosa, Corollas and Manuel reflected a wider desire for more open politics than the exile leadership was able to countenance or understand. The putsch was also motivated by growing frustration at the limited achievements of the existing ANC negotiating team. The Grote Minute, signed on the 5th of May 1990, had launched the negotiations onto a promising path. Working groups had been created to remove obstacles to negotiations such as inappropriate legislation, to smooth the repatriation of exiles and the release of political prisoners, and to address contentious matters such as the control of the armed forces, the granting of amnesty and the curtailing of political violence. Very talented politicians such as Matthews Posa Paolo Jordan and Pedro Maduna, had been put to work on these issues. On the other hand, the ANC's team was hampered by the presence of dinosaurs such as Alfred and Zor and Joe Mordisi. Moreover, even Nelson Mandela and Thabo Mbeki were themselves both obstacles to progress. Mandela's personality was not suited to the compromise and detailed work that negotiations required. He was a big gun, best held in reserve. While Mbeki was capable of managing the logistical and technical side of negotiations, Kado Asmal believes he lacked the negotiating experience and human skills the task demanded. His approach was to dominate his team intellectually, rather than to encourage and energise autonomous working groups the timeframes for negotiation were already slipping out of control. What was to become known as Codessa one the first stage of serious multi-party negotiations, was due to have begun in January 1991, but this deadline had passed with little progress being made. The wider implication of the National Executive Committee's appointment of a new negotiating body was that it believed and expected that Ramaphosa and his team would be able to give the whole process fresh impetus. valli Musa indeed, immediately went on the offensive, explaining that the leadership of the ANC had lost confidence in de Klerk and accusing the president of being part of a double agenda which the regime is pursuing. Negotiate with the National Party, he observed, even if its leader could not be trusted. We need to mobilize the strength we have to bring them to the point Where they would have no choice but to adhere to agreements arrived at that is the point at which we think negotiations can make sense the twin burdens of chief negotiator and secretary general immediately fell on ramaphosa's shoulders his task as secretary general was not merely to rebuild the anc but to create it from scratch in areas where it had never been a mass movement fortunately a new organising department under Steve Chwete, Popo Malefe, Terry Lakota and Ronnie Casseroles undertook the real work of rebuilding the ANC as a mass movement across the country. Ramaphosa had to keep in mind the likelihood that a negotiated settlement might soon produce an election but that a collapse of talks would require quite different tactics to be adopted. A few weeks after his election he was exhausted. I have found that you do so many things at the same time that you hardly even have time to take a moment's breath. You don't even get time to sit down to reflect on the many things that you are doing and that are happening around you. Nelson Mandela expressed concern about Ramaphosa's duplicate roles in charge of the organization and also of negotiations. Under pressure from Becky's associates, he tried on a number of occasions – to have the National Working Committee remove Cyril from CODESA so that he could focus his energies on building ANC structures around the country, a logistical task for which Deputy Secretary General Jacob Zuma was evidently not well equipped. However, fellow negotiators Mack Maharaj and Joe Slovo insisted on Ramaphosa's indispensability and Mandela ultimately relented. Cyril was unable to exercise much political power from the Secretary-General's office, his ANC role being more administrative than political. He needed to take painful decisions about staffing and costs, and he now lacked the time and freedom to promote his personal agenda. However, he soon established reliable head office systems under the redoubtable Marion Sparg, and he seconded able administrators such as the NUMs Simpiwe Nanise and Done Kuni from the ANC's border region. The ANC fort was secure. Together with his team of Joe Slovo, Mac Maharaj and Vali Musa, it was time for Ramaphosa to return to the negotiating table.